to the Tone That Made Us podcast. This is a chance for Dan Cav, co-host and I, friends of 30 years, to just sit and talk gear. We get to talk gear with some of the most interesting, influential musicians that mean a shit ton to us. Hope it means something to you guys. Um, we also do this so that when we get together with our wives and families, it, it may lessen the amount of time we spend talking about gear and our wives rolling their eyes at us. Uh, we're just a bunch of big kids. And ultimately, now we're big kids with far more expensive toys than we used to play with. So I wanted to introduce our next guest. I don't want to embarrass him. This is a, a super important episode for Dan and I, because we grew up on his music. I, I think there's probably only, you know, somebody else who could be up in this level of like importance to the development of the music we listen to, the music we play. And that's probably like Ace Freely. Um, and I, I don't think we're ever going to get him on here. Although never say never. You never know. Never say never. Yeah. So our, our, our guest today is first and foremost, which is important to Dan and I, an awesome father and husband. If you follow him on social media, you'll know that. Um, amazing songwriter, mixer, producer, guitarist, one of the single largest influences on us. He's played in bands like the Massacre Guys, Black Market Baby, Descendants All, Stefan Edgerton solo record, which now you guys know who he is, Slaughter, which if you don't know, is one of my favorite projects that he's done. And of course, little bands like uh, Black Flag and Flag and many more. Our guest today, welcome to the podcast, Stefan Edgerton. Hello there. How's Hello. it going? Hey, man. <laughs> nice to see you guys. Well, I hear you guys, I guess. It's, 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 yeah. Well, you know, in the podcast. So thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad been to be here. Blessed that through some, some uh, mutual friends, actually, uh, Brian Doherty, mm -hmm. who is a friend of Dan and I, we all played in a band together at one point, introduced you and I a couple of years back, and we've stayed in touch, and I appreciate your friendship, and I pre appreciate you joining the podcast. Glad to be here. It's going to be all right, fun. Wonderful. So we, we start off our podcasts um, discussing... The initial time that you saw a musical instrument that inspired you to want to be a musician. It's pretty easy to say, you know, I saw Kiss, I saw the Beatles, I saw like, of course, there's a band that's influenced you to want to be a musician. But when was the first time you saw an instrument that inspired you to be to play that instrument? Well, I had the I had the great benefit of um, having parents who played guitar. And so, but in particular, my mother had just a very, um, a very basic harmony acoustic guitar that had been stripped and refinished. And I think she painted around the sound hole, uh, you know, herself. And she literally, you know, played and sang when I was in the crib from, you know, so that guitar, awesome. of course, I, you know, I have, I, it's, it's, you know, DNA level, but you know, the funny thing, there's, there's that guitar. Cause certainly that's the one that kind of, you know, that got my head into music in the first place. But the other thing that did was a tape recorder that, that we had in my family. It was a Sony reel to reel deck, just kind of a, uh, you know, in, in those days, that was a fairly high fidelity, you know, it was kind of a hi-fi item. It was a oh, fancy yeah. item in, in its own way um, because you could record with it. And so those two things, I would say, those are the, those are the catalyst right there, those guys. And, and then, you know, obviously the influences that we could go into all day long, but the musically speaking, you know, and, and what, what triggered it? No question. It'd have to be my mom's harmony. <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. That's awesome. I think that was the first time so far, thus far where we've had that, that influence has come from the home. Uh, I don't yeah. think anyone we've spoken to yet has really cited an influence at home. Um, yeah. It's interesting because, you know, that part of it, you know, as, as I, as I travel on through, through and remember, remember backwards, it, it, it is, it is really, you know, that is 
clearly where it came from. And, and, you know, there's a fascinating book Carl was telling me about, he was just giving me kind of a synopsis of it. I think it's, it's called your brain on music. And it discusses in this book, uh, I believe I haven't read it yet because I, I just haven't, I haven't gotten there, but I will. Um, the way that music connects with the young brain, the young developing brain and why we, why we respond to music in the way we do and why as older people, we latch so heavily onto music that we grow up hearing. And, um, you know, there's no, there's no question that that, you know, that early, that earliest inspiration definitely would have come from my mom. No question. Mm -hmm. Cause I mean, she was, she was playing yeah. guitar every day and singing to me when I was in the crib and, and, you know, playing music for me. So, I mean, it was absolutely in the house. No question. Yeah. Very cool. So, so obviously you had that influence at home and that was from your early days. So when did you actually end up getting your own instrument? So the, the, a quick timeline from what happens there is my mom's got this guitar and, and we, and she had a long, a long time boyfriend that lived with us. That was a great guy. And he played, he played some guitar too. He had a circle of friends who all had very nice for the time, very nice Martin guitars. One guy had a D18, one had a D45. You know, they, they had these beautiful guitars and they would get together and play like bluegrass songs and that kind of stuff. That was, that was sort of what was going on. So that, that stuff was around my house too. That would have been more when I was like seven or eight years old. Well, I was, you know, bugging mom, bugging mom. Um, I want a guitar, I want a guitar, I want a guitar. So, so eventually I, I had been given um, for Christmas one year, a, a toolbox with some very basic tools and a crate of wood for my grandfather. And I used that to make what looks looked more or less like a cigar box guitar. It's just like a little square. I dug a hole in it. So it looked like a guitar. And I took two pieces of wood that were kind of long rectangles and used a couple other pieces of wood behind them and a bunch of nails done poorly. And made this thing that looked like a guitar. My mom gave me an old guitar string and I had a nail at the, the end of the body and nail at the other end. And I put a string on it. And I could go boing, boing, and I could like bend the neck slightly with the small amount of tension that was there. And I think that was enough to go, oh, okay, kid. Okay, kid. We got it. You know? So, <laughs> so she got me a, you know, just the most basic, um, you know, pawn shop intro level guitar and said, if you, you know, if you, stick with this and do it, then we'll, you know, we'll improve on this guitar. And that's exactly what we did. And all, and so I'll go a little bit into that guitar real quick. Yeah, please do. Guitar. Please do. So that guitar, you know, I, I, I learned chords. I learned enough to be able to play a bunch of songs. Right. So I, I had, um, you know, I, I think the first thing I learned to play would have been the vocal melody to I walk the line. <laughs> right nice. bom, 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 bom. and you know just as a single note thing and then i learned you know basic chords my mom taught me and then and i you know had shown enough interest in it that we went to a store that was right up the street from our house called acoustic music this was in salt lake city in the early 70s i think it would have been early 70s and they had a guitar there a three-quarter size guitar, very beautifully made. The the brand was Grammar. And if you if you get on and and it won't be a, a familiar thing, but if you get on Google and look around, you'll find information about this company that was actually made very cool guitars and was later in, in its in its time of, of existence owned by Ampeg and built by Ampeg. Very strange. I think mine was pre-Ampeg. Oh wow. Um, but you'll see the Ampeg logo on this on these like funky looking acoustic guitars. And so I had this beautifully made inlay all over it. I mean it was really nice. Shaler tuning keys. It was a you know a very quality instrument and um you know uh but but an uncommon instrument and I played that for a really a really long time. I wanted to play electric guitar but you know that was what i played on for the longest time and at age nine i started so I, I started playing at age nine and then at age 11 with that grammar i started playing regularly at a shopping mall near the house i grew up in like busking and you know doing you know just whatever songs i knew john prine songs i knew how to play Johnny be good. I, you know, just a, whatever, whatever, like simple songs that I could learn, I, I played. And I did that every weekend until I was 14, pretty much. I played it like I played at that mall. I played at um, art fairs around Salt Lake where I grew up, that kind wow. of thing. And so, so that was, you know, that was my, uh, you know, that sort of brings you up to, 
to <laughs> somewhat speed there. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the solo thing. Wow. I never knew that you were that, that solo, uh, solo acoustic player. That's awesome. Yeah, weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. at that point you're hitting 14, 15, 16, mm -hmm. I'm guessing. So your first foray into playing in bands at that point, what kind of, what, what was your first like band setup? With the first band, you know, I mean, when you're, when you're a kid, when you're a kid, you always have theoretical bands that you're in only nobody knows how to play yet. And there isn't oh, yeah. anything ever done. <laughs> we're still, in the we're business. still like that. We're still kind of <laughs> like that, you know, but, but the, uh, yeah, right. That, that kind of holds true to this day, but the, the first band that I ever had that actually could, you know, make, we wrote songs and made sounds that made actual songs was a band called the big fish. And it was, it was very much a new wave band. What I, you know, so skipping, skipping a bunch of other crucial information, um, which, you know, would, what I had been, you know, I, I, I did the, my, my thing till I was about 14. I got my first decent electric guitar, which was a harmony stratotone. I got it from that same shop, acoustic music. They just had it in a, you know, sitting upstairs and, and they taught me how to refinish it. And, and that was my first half decent electric guitar. And, and so I ended up getting, so my mom also was in a band briefly and she Play, played with some, uh, she she was working at a university and there were a bunch of people in the library she worked in that were music students. And so they started this little band and she would sing with them sometimes. And they just did played at parties a few times and that kind of thing. But I used to go to their practices. Guitar player, they, they did a cover of the song Scatterbrain by Jeff Beck, which is a motherfucker. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a badass, right? And I was like, yeah. whoa. Like, and it, it got me leaning towards guitar as opposed to being more of a like singer, you know, singer, guitar player. Guy. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, fuck, listen to that. I want to learn how to do that. And so that guy became my teacher and he got me into fusion music. So I was listening to Jeff Beck, Mojave's New Orchestra, um, uh, Larry Coriel in the 11th House, Al Demiola, like, so, you know, that was kind of where with the stuff I was starting to listen to, because that's what he was into and what he was saying, Hey, listen to this, this is the good shit and Hendrix and, you know, normal, normal guitar heroes, cream and whatever else. Um, but I really, I was, I was really into, into that kind of fusion music. And that's what I was listening to when I discovered punk rock, which I think punk rock hit me like as a whole human. Maybe, you know, I mean, you guys probably know what that means. It's like this speaks to the the person above yeah, just sure. musicality, right? Oh, yeah. And so so I I got into into um punk rock, but you know where I lived, what you know, where there was a there was a great record store in town. It was kind of the, the hippie bookstore, and it had a great record uh, a record store in it too. The place was called Cosmic Airplane, and it had a great punk rock section. But like, you know, there was nobody really knew what that meant. So if you're in Salt Lake, you're landlocked from many of the city centers. You know nothing about Los Angeles, and you're you know yeah. I was a little kid, right? So I'm just picking up records and looking at them, going. Oh fuck! Oh, this looks interesting. So you buy it and you check it out and try it. So for me, punk rock, punk rock is the Pistols and it's also the Police and it's also the B-52s and it's Devo and it's Dead Kennedys and it's Black Flag and it's Generation X. I mean, it's it's this weird smattering of stuff that includes two-tone ska it includes weird rockabilly it includes robert fripp and talking heads like it's it wasn't you know it could be anything right yeah. it could be synthesizer music as long as it was just not what was getting played on the radio when it was new and different and exciting and interesting that's For what sure. punk rock was to me so yeah. so my first band back to, to to my first functioning band the big fish that band had no bass it was just guitar, keyboards, drums, and a singer. <laughs> so, and it and it would have it would have had elements of surf music, elements of punk rock, which all four of us were were in, into. Um, that, but that weird that weird cross section of all kinds of music that fell under the the handle of punk rock. Right. So that was my first functioning band, and that and and that band 
I had that harmony when when we started it, but shortly afterwards, I got a '64 Fender Jaguar, and that oh. Jag. Now the this is you know somebody had stripped all the paint off and it and changed out the pickups with Gibson humbuckers. That's that guitar got stolen when I was 16, and probably I'm probably PAFs. Yes, and I am still oh, absolutely devastated. Uh, I'm I, sure. I'm, I'm still, you know, now I'm 57. I'm still reeling from that loss. But anyway, that was the guitar I was playing back then. Was was a was a '64 Fender Jaguar, and that was cool because because um, you know I had those Ventures records. You know, the uh, mm-hmm. play guitar with the Ventures and all all those records. Yep. And yep. you know, we're all playing Fenders. Sometimes Mose rights, but sometimes Fenders too. And so I was like, yeah, yeah this is cool. <laughs> so anyway, there we go. That that brings us up to to. Definitely the uh, again long winded, like I said. There you go. No, a, oh, all for it. All for it. Would it. Do you remember what amp you were playing through? Yeah, that was going to be my question. Well, the, it, yeah, I had a, I had a Gibson, a small Gibson combo, one twelve tube combo for a mm-hmm. while. I had a Vox Royal Guardsman for a while. That was a solid state amp. Then I, I, I got a Fender deluxe a blackface deluxe and i had a vox 112 cabinet that it sat on top of and so i think so okay then as far as bands go i went from this band the big fish and then and then i with some different friends i had this band the massacre guys that james mentioned massacre guys our first fairly legit show like a you know like in a kind of reddit hall with the real band was us opening for tsol we were 16 um and this was the brief version of tsol that had frank agno on guitar too so there was it was a five man that that was very oh wow but we we happened to do that and we hit it off really well with these guys well i do remember that at that show that was the amp that i used was the was the blackface deluxe with the vox cabinet and Shortly after that, I got what is now a popular amp, was then a virtually unknown amp, which was a Silvertone, the kind of twin 12, you know, the 50 watt Silvertone amp that like, yep. I think Jack White made it popular probably. Yeah, sure. And it, it fucking rip an amp. It sounds great. Sounds good. And that's why everyone's like, whoa, what the hell? Like You could just buy these at Sears, you know? Yeah, it sounds <laughs> good too. And so so that was an amp, an amp that I that I had back then then and then you know when i was 18 in massacre guys still i bought a 50 watt sound city head that you're talking dan yeah i'm a big sound city fan well i still have that it's the it's the piece of gear i've owned the longest i got it when i was 18 and i still have it now and i played it in the last couple of years of massacre guys it was and sadly i i did have the matching 412 and i sold it like a fuckhead and i'm uh you know that I wish I could get back real bad, but the, you know, that was a, that was the first really good amp I ever had. Um, somewhere in there, there was also a Yamaha, you know, in the big fish for a while, I had a Yamaha, I guess it would have been the Yamaha trying to do a, like a super, like it had, it was four, four tens and a solid state amp. Oh, it was, a yeah. amp. it fucking sounded bad. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So there you go. There's a, no, no. I mean, you know, not it just that it was that particular thing. It just, you know, there was like the distortion, you know, it was that kind of, it was a clean amp. So the distortion was not ideal. Let's put it that way. Um, The volume was plenty ideal. And I do have one other, one other thing that happened one time. We, my, I had no amp, like something blew up and I didn't have an amp for, for a period. And I did, a show in Denver with massacre guys with, I don't remember what 412, I think it was the sound city 412 and a PVPA head as, you know, a four channel PA head that you used to get back then. Right. And, and I'm playing through it. I'm going, fuck, this is a kind of a cool sound and it sounds familiar. Why is that? Well, I figure out later on that Greg actually used exactly that same PVPA head for a brief period. And I think he recorded the six pack single and some of that other stuff with that. Oh, head. Wow. Um, and so I was like, that's why this is familiar. I figured that out later. And I was like, that's why that amp sounded <laughs> like something I knew in my head right. is because of that. Anyway, we were just driving 
the shit out of it or yeah something yeah it had a master volume so i i just drove the shit out of it and just distorted it it was an actual square wave distortion like just you know not like a you know what do they do the diode clipper or yeah, you know yeah. whatever like a like a normal you know distortion box <laughs> it's pretty funny that's amazing so so then after where do you go from there what's your next project and well, so, okay, Massacre guys go on for a while. Uh, we we played together for five years. Now, okay, a couple of years into the Massacre guys, well, I'll, I'll, let me back up again to the Big Fish. The Big Fish, like I said, we don't have a bass player. We're, you know, we um, our keyboard player would play, the, you know, hold down the bass parts on the Moog synthesizer, you know, on the Moog, I guess is what it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, Very giddy of him. Yeah, totally. And uh, And then... And so we were supposed to get a bass player, though, and that bass player was my then best friend and longest friend, Carl Alvarez. He was mm-hmm. he didn't know how to play bass yet, but he there was a so, time where that existed. Yes. So <laughs> yeah, right. And so he started into bass right. fairly late. I think he joined Massacre Guys. When, fuck, he he might have been eighteen already by then, or seventeen. I mean, he was a little bit older. Um, and you know, but he had been around me, you know, we met when we, when I was 11, he was, oh, wow. you know, yeah. So we've been hanging out since we were little, you know, since junior high. Right. And um, anyway, we, you know, we had found him a base somewhere and he, he was supposed to sort of get up to speed and play bass in big fish, but that never, that he never got there before the band kind of just stopped playing. But, but he had that bass around and he started, he, he had played a little bit of bass in like maybe junior high band or something like that. He had a little bit of, and, and he'd grown up around, you know, plenty of records around. He was, he was a fan of music, obviously. Well, then he kind of got pretty good. And then it, um, a couple of years into Massacre Guys, which we were together for five years, uh, he, he ended up joining Massacre Guys. And so for the last three years, it was Carl and I playing bass together. They're playing, playing in our band together. And um, so, you know, and we were roommates. And so we, you know, we had a very, um, you know, our, our kind of weird way that we figured out. I mean, I, I can't say that I taught Carl. He's a, a very intelligent person. I think he just absorbed how to play the bass out of thin You air. guided him. I guided him. I, I did. I did have suggestions and I did, you know, we did that that's exactly right i sort of like you know kind of drug him through parts of it and and you know showed him what i could and and you know he excelled very quickly and so years later look at you guys (laughs) yeah and here we are still going right isn't that funny well so so anyway we we um we had that band you know and he so that band massacre guys lasted for five years we recorded a couple of of seven inches and did a couple songs on comps and so on so that was the first band i was in that recorded something and then then i then somewhere i heard a um a classical guitar record it was a live classical guitar record with andre segovia and um Oh God, what's it? Julian Breen. Um, you know, the probably two preeminent at that time classical guitarists that were right. around. I mean, they were fucking brilliant players. And I heard this piece on there. I believe it's called Asturias by Albanez, I think is the name of the composer. And it's it's another, it was another event like hearing Jeff Beck's scatterbrain. It was something where the guitars were just blazing and i was like oh i gotta learn this and i ended up diving headlong into classical guitar i sold all of my shit except the sound city amp the only thing i kept was the sound city amp and i bought myself a basic yamaha um classical guitar and i moved to washington dc and i played briefly there i didn't play in black market baby i played with black market baby at uh in in a band called auto da fe um okay. that was a brief little thing uh that a fun band with some with some friends sab from iron cross i was gonna that was uh, i was just gonna say sab gray right yeah sab gray it, i had and, no and, idea uh, that you were in that yeah i was in that you know it was pretty brief but it was really fun and we got you know sab's a great a great guy a funny guy a really good dude and uh and the drummer eric walgren he was in a band called underground soldier that that played around quite a bit and the bass player in that band paul cleary had had been the original bass player in black market baby and we actually did shows with black market baby and i believe we played with the dickies too 
we played a few, you know, a handful of shows. Um, but during that, during a couple of years there, I was really focused on trying to get into a music conservatory. And so mm. I was deep, deep with the classical guitar, <laughs> right? And, and then Carl, the long story, Carl ended up uh, having the opportunity to join Descendants. And when I called to congratulate him, I heard that news and I called to congratulate him. And he said, actually, we need a guitar player. <laughs> so I flew out to Los Angeles. Um, I didn't even own an electric guitar at the time, but you know, I knew all the songs very well from having, you know, Carl and I were huge Descendants fans. So this was a big deal, you know, for us. And, and so, you know, we spent three days holed up in, in the practice room. I played one of Ray's old guitars and was it one of those Yamahas? Yamaha. Yeah, it was yeah. one of those Yamahas. Yeah, that he used to play only spray painted gray, you know. Um, and I spent a couple of days jamming with uh, you know, just the three of us jamming. And, you know, it made sense very quickly that this was gonna work out just fine because, you know, I think if you know for a couple of reasons. One, you know, Bill and Milo were super close friends from high school. Carl and I were best friends. You already minimized the like, okay, let's throw four random personalities in here that have no clue about each other and see what happens. It wasn't like yeah. that. You know, we had, um, and, you know, during that three days, Bill and I had all of these talks, you know, about, you know, we're getting to know each other and, and Milo too, but, but uh, with Bill, we had a long time to sit around and I found out what I had suspected for a while, which was that during that period of Black Flags music where they were doing a lot of the instrumental stuff, you know, Family Man and Process yeah. of Weeding Out, those great yeah. records, that a lot of the prime influences for that stuff were Mahavishnu Orchestra, you know, shit that I was already deep into. And I was like, wow, yep. these are the only punk rock people I've ever met that are also into this stuff. That's yeah, it was all bizarre. that first wave prog stuff, right? Totally. And so it's amazing. So what a weird time, coincidence. You know? Yeah, no kidding. Well, and, and it really shows, uh, I think, as as sort of a fan of your playing and, you know, I, I, I have, we have a, a group of friends that constantly try and figure out how to play some stuff that you've done. There's some great guys all over YouTube that um, that do a pretty good job at, at, at least leading us in that direction. Um, you can tell that 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 influence comes from Prague, but I, it makes total sense that that influence came from um, folk guitar from, from nylon string, classical guitar as well. Those runs that yes. you do a lot of the dissonant, weird, scaly single note things that that's that that's where that comes from. That's, you great. know, and, and the, the, the thing, you know, if I, if there was one great takeaway from playing that music and learning that thing, doing all the scales, hours and hours of scales and, and trying to play, was trying was trying to play clearly and accurately um knowing how to deaden a string you didn't want ringing all all of that little stuff that cleans up the playing so that it's really kind of precise and accurate and you're only putting out what you want to put out rather than just you know random happenstance yeah. and that's that stuff you know what what I have been able to sort of you know use that that's something i really learned a lot about trying to to do the classical guitar thing and it and it sure so so you know that stuff it, it's it it really did um you know it's useful because you know i'll say i i end up get, being given credit where for, for a lot of stuff that bill stevenson wrote on the guitar bill stevenson is an is a monster on the guitar he's a total badass so he's written you know some of the some of our coolest guitar parts are things he wrote he wrote he wrote the entire guitar part to scary sad by all mm, he wrote so good. all of all of uh she's my ex all of that that all of those guitar parts he wrote them you know verbatim and i just did my best to to play them the way he wanted them played and you know there of course i was able to play them so there was there was that he, he you know he's like well this is the first time i've been able to sort of try to use this kind of a guitar approach you know so i was able to bring something to the party so i wrote you know the guitar part to mary is mine you know so like you wouldn't you know th there's there's plenty of stuff that i could bring to it too but but no question bill has written a large part of our very best guitar stuff it's, oh, it's trust amazing. me we've we've studied the credits 
<laughs> and, yeah. and, and you know what? We've been blessed that we've been, we've seen you guys over the years in so many different places, it's especially it kind of keeps coming back to city gardens is yeah. probably the venue I've seen you guys the most in. And we've seen you guys loosen up and, and switch instruments and do an entire encore doing midnight madness with bugs yeah. singing. And you know, that, that chemical people, seven inch that he did. And, um, right. you know, you guys have done some descendant songs when you were all and and Bill can rip and and you've got to get enough credit. You're a pretty badass drummer yourself. Well, thank you. I started at the same time. I, you know, we we could do an entire podcast on drum nerdery for me because I because I drums are I started about six months after guitar. I I I started playing drums and I never really developed a, a great um uh stamina i when i was a kid i had stamina but that's just you know youthful exuberance or whatever yeah, right. i i i can't do what bill does but i but i know how to play the drums like you know to feel exactly how i want and so you know in in our band um you know there there are many songs where the drum idea might be mine and the guitar idea might be bills that's that's totally that's totally a thing for us we will absolutely do that stuff back and forth and of course when we recorded for the longest time when it would be he and i doing that i would record him and he would record me as, as you know as right. one does and so you know there there um we've had to learn to speak the language of each other's instruments and for sure uh, really well you know for sure um so let's just let's i don't want to dwell too much on descendants history because it's been told so many times although there are so many great stories and truly we can keep you here for four hours just talking about that <laughs> stuff but the one thing to note that kind of just sprung on me so in 84 85 when dan and i are skateboarding watching skate videos nerding out on the descendants and black flag you and Carl are doing the same thing at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. You guys are huge fans of the band. Totally. Nerding out on it. We got into them. Like the first, the first Descendants thing I heard was, was there, there was a cassette that came out. It was a combination. It was a, uh, a split kind of a thing between Posh Boy and SST. It was called The Future Looks Bright Ahead. And it had a bunch of the Posh Boy bands. Um, and it had a bunch of the SST bands. And it, it included rough mixes they weren't even the final mixes of the fatty p so oh, wow. the first ascended song i ever heard was i like food and and i was just like i mean i was just riveted you know and so as soon as as soon as i could get a copy of the fatty p i got that as soon as milo goes to college came out we got that i played that fucker till it was dead i bought a second <laughs> copy of it and i just recently <laughs> bought my third copy of it but but uh but anyway it's a um you know we were we were you know the an interesting thing that we noticed in descendants was there was the 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 thing that we were trying to do between us, Carl and I, as as kids, as as he's developing as a bass player, and really I'm developing as a guitar player too. But I mean, just you know, as we we're kind of getting up to equal speed and playing music together, was trying to figure out how to not always just play the exact same thing together. And here was a band that was doing that. You know what I mean? They were it was yeah. they were they were we were like listen to that. You can totally hear the bass. The bass is doing its whole own program. And like the guitar is doing its whole own program. And we loved that. And so I, I think, think Ray was, and Doug really, that was that pivotal, that enjoy era where it really got experimental and, and kind of set the table for you guys. Well, and yeah, certainly, you know, that, that we were able to embrace all of it. Carl and I, you know, we were like, Oh, you want to play, you want to play like, you know, global probing. Fuck. Yeah. You know, we were totally like all of it. We were just like, yes. So, you know, it, it was a very, it was a very good fit and a fortuitous fit for us and, and still is. And we, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on a little bit of the, of the newer descendants thing uh, that, you know, the most recent record that came out. Um, Loved uh, it. Yeah. Ninth and Walnut, which was full of songs um, that, you know, these were the songs that they were doing when, you know, before and when Milo joined the band. So, you know, cause they were a three piece for a while beforehand. So, so when he joined, these were the songs that were, they were doing right before he contributed his own songs later. And those songs, you know, they, they fill in a gap 
that, you know, makes you go, oh, okay, this is how you get from, you know, to, to Milo goes this. to college and, and yeah. you know, fills in some of those weird gaps between songs, you know, from the Fat EP era and songs from Milo goes to college era. And the re-recordings were great. Oh, they're great. Yeah, they're fucking awesome. And, and so playing that stuff is a, you know, it's a total blast. I mean, it's, you know, so I, that stuff has been really fun because for Carl and I, we get to be both fanboy and, you know, present for, for it. It's yeah. Pretty no cool. kidding. And I was there when they were recording a lot of that stuff too. You know, I was just sitting out in another room and I was like, I can't believe it. These motherfuckers haven't played together in, in decades. And listen <laughs> to that. It sounds exactly like it like my Lego scholars. I can't believe it. I was just, uh, that's amazing. All right. So amazing. let's get to the, the descendants gear. So you, you get out there, you're playing Ray's old guitar. When did you finally get like your setup in the descendants? So when I, so, so when, when it was decided, you know, after we did our three days of jamming out in which, and by the way, that, you know, probably two thirds of of the descendants all record we played during that three-day period we played all that shit you know we showed each other our riffs so you know those were the things that we sort of used you know th this was how we kind of knew the band had a, a place to go rather than just like yeah we're gonna just play the same songs that are all over you know that that everybody knows um this showed the new path forward and so when it was decided, yes, okay, we're going to join. Well, Carl and I didn't really own much. Carl had one of those little acoustic amps with the 115, and he had his Ibanez Roadstar 2 bass. That's what he, you know, was using uh, at the end of Massacre, guys, and what he used uh, when he went to try out with Bill and 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 when they decided to to play. I bought a Carvin full stack X. I think it was the X. 100b, 100B. Or, yeah yeah and and two 412 cabinets i'm pretty sure one of those 412 cabinets is still sitting at the blasting room with gray spray painted gray from the, oh wow we bought that in the end of 86 and i you know so i i came out from dc i think i got there um was it october it was october i know that six weeks later we got in the van and we finished the last run of shows for the enjoy tour i was just gonna and, say i it, I knew it had to be quick because I didn't realize that's when you went out. I saw Descendants, it, it would have been late 86 before the before the All Record came out. That came out, what, mid-87? Came out early 87, yeah. Yeah, Mar March of 87. I think it was March or April. I didn't realize. I, so I just found that there, curious. Like so. out yeah, we we did just just some Northwestern shows. Um, we did, you know, Portland, Seattle, uh Played with the Melvins. That was badass. Our third show, Melvins opened for us. That was that was fun. Um, so yeah, so that that was what we were touring with then. Um, and the guitar I had was a Kramer Beretta, if you if you can believe it. That that we bought that, you know, I went and played a bunch of, you know, I'd never been, there was no guitar center anywhere I'd been. So I went to a guitar center with Bill and I and I and I played, you know, I was like, well, this guitar feels good. I'll just buy this one. So, you know, we That's bought a live edge guitar. It's on it. Well, live. Or at least it's in the picture. I thought in the picture I had the Les Paul Jr. Well, well, anyway, there, there's probably pictures right. from that time though, where I did have that there, there's a whole lot of pictures you would have seen with, with the, with the Beretta and I bought the Beretta and, and then I bought a cheap Kramer just off like off of a, a newspaper ad as a spare and and i got rid of that guitar almost instantly Shoot, pretty quickly after that i traded that for a firebird that was a bad call but not because firebirds oh. are bad it just wasn't the right guitar for what we were doing yeah not right for you i love the hell out of them and then one of our friends borrowed it and broke the headstock off and and then yeah, i never saw that guitar again i don't know where it went it's probably worth a fortune now well anyway i had the beretta and um while we were out touring we got to new york and i bought that man he's or sam ash one of those i bought a single cut les paul jr with and and i think it had a p90 in it i think and i think i changed it out to some kind of a humbucker probably a seymour duncan jb if i if, if I'm, I'm i'm almost positive that's right and that's what i think i was using on the cover of liveage i'm pretty sure that's right and I had bought, I had, uh, I had by then gotten rid of the Carvin head and bought three Laney heads. I don't remember the model. Two of them were hundred watts. One of them was a fifty watt. I used, I used 
the Laney, I'm almost sure I used the Laney on Descendants All. And I used it for, you know, quite a while after that. And then I got something else. I can't think of what I, it'll come to me in a minute. And I, I eventually sold off those Laney's one to Big Drill Car, who I'm sure you guys probably remember. Love at least that. one of Absolutely. Yeah, great band, right? So, so I sold at least one of those to Mark Arnold. I think maybe one of them might have gone to the chemical people and the other one, who knows what the hell happened to it. But <clears throat> those, those were good high gain amps. They were high gainy, you know, mm -hmm. they were, they were pretty good. Um, uh, yeah, those were not bad. And then I had, for whatever reason, I had three 412 cabinets because when I bought my Carvin stuff, Carl also got, he bought a Carvin solid state head and two 412 cabinets, not, not eight tens or four tens like you would think of with a base. They, the, the, what Carvin was offering at that time was yeah. 412 with a, uh, CAA. I can't remember the name of that speaker company. Um, but uh, I mean, Carvin that at that point was in Hollywood. It was accessible. It was yes. killer gear. It was good. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was solid stuff. It sounded pretty good. And so, yeah, that's right. We had those two, we had the two four twelves on my side with Celestians. We had, um, we had two four twelves on his side with CAS, I think is the name of that company that made mm. those speakers. They were designed for bass though. And, um, oh, the C CTS, the speakers they used, they did 12 inches, but that, that's what was in, uh, SVTs as well. Maybe, maybe it was that. Yeah. Maybe yeah, it was, I, was that. Just curious. I can't remember yeah. now. I'll have to look it up. So that's that's cool. what those, yes. Yeah, so we, we used, we used that setup pretty quickly. We moved on to, to a rain preamp and a Carver power amp and an 810 cabinet and two 18 inch Gauss speakers. That's what you see on the cover of Liveage. Oof, and when yeah. that happened- Sideways, right? Yes, sideways. And, and so I took over one of Carl's 412s and I had sort of a square. I had three 412s and three heads. That's what you see in the Liveage picture. Huh. And um, from there, I think I went solid state from there. I bought, I think I, I, I got a Randall 120 watt solid state head. Yep. That's and I was using that when we recorded Revenge. Yes. I was I used that on Revenge except for the song She's My Ex where I borrowed some other some Marshall a slightly hot rodded Marshall from Red Cross. And that amp sounded great from from Love Robert Hecker, the great Robert Hecker from Red Cross. I borrowed that head and we used it on that because we were looking for a very specific sound. But the rest of that record was done with a solid state amp, oddly. And then huh. um, and then I got a ADA MP1 and a crown <laughs> power amp. And I used it with those same couple. That was percolator. Uh, yeah. So I used that. I bought that ADA the day we recorded um, Trailblazer. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I bought CBS. it that day. It's, and so, so I played day. that head and I used that, I used that setup for quite a while. I used that for, for a good couple of years. That one had the underwater plinking sound effect. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. It was a bizarre. Yeah. From but only, it, from breathe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did sound kind of bizarre. Yeah, that's true. So we we had that's what we were using then. And then when we went to record breaking things, we um that was the first time I ever tried a JCM 900. And we recorded that record with the JCM 900. Oh, no, before before the JCM 900, I bought a Mesa triaxis preamp and a Mesa fifty fifty power amp. That was a and monster setup. Cabinets and that yeah. that was a good sounding setup. Oh, yeah. Then then we went and did breaking things and that we used that amp on one side and we used the studio had a JCM nine hundred on the other side so we bought one a fifty watt and that brings us to everything sucks. Because that's what I that's what I used on everything sucks was that pair right there and everybody. <laughs> For years, people were like, "Dude, how the book do you get the guitars out on that?" Well, that was a that was, um, okay. And so, so you know, yeah, we went off on amp patrol <laughs> all over the place. Oh, uh, love but it. The, I have more questions. Love it. But the guitar that I played almost the entire time, and I played this for for a really really long time, was um, a Dan Armstrong that I bought for three hundred and fifty dollars. If you can fucking believe that, 
$350. They were available everywhere back then. Oh, they're plastic. Nobody gave a shit. That, yep. You know, so I bought mine for $350. they are all worth played, three or four grand now. Totally. And I played that guitar at every show, every recording, everything for close to 10 years. Finally, at the end of 86, I was like, you know, a guy who plays guitar all the time should own a Les Paul sometime in his life. So I bought a 1973 Les Paul Deluxe that had been routed out and has, um, I guess, I believe that they are Ibanez humbuckers in it, like from from a lawsuit guitar. From like a Japanese lawsuit model. Yeah, yeah and, and it, it, but it originally was a Deluxe, so it had the mini Did they have the, uh, the pickup covers, were they ornate? No, they oh, weren't. No. They did those sometimes. You know the ones. Yeah, before. I do know from like an Ibanez artist and that kind of yeah. thing. Those are beautiful. No, th these were, they just looked like pretty standard, you know, and they just had kind of standard pickup covers. But that guitar has a very, very great sound to it. You still and have it? Yes. And that's the, it, the, the Dan Armstrong was stolen later, but the, but the, um, the, the Les Paul I have to this day and it, it, um, you know, it, it stays in tune just as well as every other Les Paul, which is to say not in a fucking thousand years. <laughs> so, so it's dead useless for me as a live guitar. I would never play it live. Um, but it did have a really good sound. And I used that guitar on, I used it on everything sucks. And I used it on cool to be you. And in between that, while we were mixing everything sucks, I bought a Howard Roberts fusion guitar, which is kind of like a, it's about, you know, maybe a little bit deeper than a 335, but not as deep as like a proper jazz guitar. Yeah, it's a mid-sized it, body. Yeah. yeah, kind of a mid, yeah, with F holes. I wanted I wanted something that would feed back. And so I bought that, and I think I used that guitar on at least one all record, along with that Sound City amp. <laughs> so like, anyway. Mass Nerder. Mass yeah, nerder Mass Nerder. Mass that. Nerder is probably what that's, that's probably where that was, and or problematic. Oh, yeah. Um, might've been both, uh, but everything sucks. You know, that one, that, that is a funny, that's a funny setup because that one we used that Les Paul guitar, um, we used, uh, the two amps, like I was mentioning the tri-axis preamp and the 900 with no cabinets. We used a, a Husen Kettner red box cabinet simulating DI box. That's what no that guitar sound is. And we used it on the first Hagfish record too, which is why that, you know, it has yeah. a very specific sound. Once you hear that sound, you can't unhear it kind of, but, but it's a good sound. It's a really, it's a really useful, badass sound. So, so um, anyway, I, I hope I didn't go off on too many. Oh yeah. I used this and then it was this and then it was this. That's he, exactly on all of them. There's, all there's the, the list. Right. And so that's, so that was, uh, that was what I used. Um, and then, Let's reverse. Let's hold up. Let's reverse a second on the Dan Armstrong, because it wasn't just any old Dan Armstrong. Uh, you had a humbucker in it. I put a bolted, humbucker in it. Bolted to the body. Bolted to the body. There were a couple of iterations of that idea. So, so I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. Now, this 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 idea was directly taken from Greg Ginn. Um, so, you know, the Dan Armstrong had those pickups that slide in and out and you could get a few different ones, but none of them really suited our sound. You know, the, the country bass didn't really work. That was more of a single coil vibe. There was a humbucker available, but it was rarer than hen's teeth and it didn't sound, I don't think it was. No, but Kent Armstrong, by the Kent way, fixed he makes yeah. good ones. Now, yeah, I bought he fixed one for that. mine. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so, you know, we, so Greg, put, uh, he used casting resin to permanently mount a super distortion, an old DiMaggio super distortion mm -hmm. humbucker into his. Chris Pierce did the same thing to his, by the way. Exactly. And that's you know what Chris, I did to mine. Right? Very well. Yes. Chris is a great friend. And um, I did a similar thing with, with that. I don't remember what pickup I started with, but I will say that what I eventually ended up with, I, I went to, a Seymour Duncan Invader pickup. Yep. And then, then I, the, the lat, when that guitar was stolen, it had an EMG 81 in it, which I tried out for a while. That worked okay. It's kind of a smooth, it's a real smoothed out kind of a sound, but it, you yeah. know, it, it still worked okay. So that guitar, 
you know, it did all these records, all these bazillions of shows, and but it had three different pickups over the course of time. It had a JB, it had the Seymour Duncan Invader, and it had that EMG 81. And it had no multiple knobs. paint jobs. It had a lot of paint jobs. It had no knobs. Um, uh, I got rid of those pretty much immediately. And that event, which had to do with the rusting out of, of some, some pots that were in there. That's why I, you know, took them out and just why, you know, I just had a Jack, you know, just plug the guitar into it. And that was it. The, the reason that that, you know, what, what ended up happening as a result of that is that the freedom given by having to not think about where your hand is, I can just, blah, I can just bash all over the place with it. And I love the feel of that wide open, you know, that I can just dig in if I feel like it. Mm -hmm. And so every guitar I've had since has not had any knobs on it. So when and you're I, using just like an Ernie Ball volume pedal or something? To, yeah, I used an Ernie Ball volume pedal. I had a very generic mute pedal at one time. Um, I've really never used any pedals. I, a couple of years ago, I started using one. I'll get into that in a second when we talk about more modern modern stuff. Mm -hmm. But but that was recent. I never used pedals throughout the whole time I've been in the band. I just never could find any that I liked. And really, when I was a kid, I mean, I did have a Big Muff. I got that, you know, an OG Big Muff that I'd kill to have back, of course. I did have an OG, um, uh, what's it called? The green, you know, everybody had one. Um, uh, like a, uh, Ibanez. like an 808. Yeah. An 808, but whatever yeah. the, whatever the tube screamer, tube screamer. Yeah, tube screamer. Yeah. the original tube screamer. I had an original tube screamer. I'd kill to have that back too. And those were really, you know, kind of the only distortion pedals I ever owned were those two. Um, and I really just, you know, at the, my, my, I, I just, there was so much sound that I was still trying to understand and get acquainted with without bringing effects into the mess. So for me, it, and there was just more shit to break, you know, and in all the old days there were kids jumping off the stage and you know, you mm -hmm. know it was like, nah, this is, this is a pointless happening. We were those kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, I it was so I didn't have any of that stuff. Yeah. Me and him, and, you know, <laughs> Yeah, totally. Chris, Chris Pierce, uh, Chris Pierce yeah, Chris which Pierce. by the way, you know, since we're, since we're talking about Chris Pierce, I met him. I was standing in Rochester, New York, where my mom used to live. There's a Rochester house of guitars. I don't know if you've ever been to that place, but yeah. this mm -hmm. place is fucking insane. Right. Yeah. And I'm just standing there staring at this big round thing full of these incredible guitars. And I think I happened to be staring at a Gretsch, just like the one Billy Zoom plays an X back then. Um, and I'm standing and, and I can feel the presence of somebody just staring at me and I look over to my left. And this guy's just looking at me. He just looks at me. He just goes, what the fuck are you doing here? That's what he said to me. And that's how I met Chris Pierce. Anyway. So that, that's, that was a funny story. Oh, it's we um, love Chris, man. Yeah, Chris I played in a band with him. We used to work together. We've known each other for a lot of years. Uh, oh, he's a great guy. He used he's to own the rehearsal studios. We always played at. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Chris is fine. So anyway, that, that, um, so anyway, on the, on the gear front. Yeah. So that sort of gives you the, where the, the Dan Armstrong was and the, and why there are no knobs on any of my guitars. This concludes part one of our interview with Stefan Edgerton. Please click on part two for the remainder of the episode. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and share. We're counting on you.